Welcome once again to the Life Plus God podcast. My name is Alyssa Robinson, and today I'm here with our senior pastor right here at Treach, Reverend Daniel Humbert. Welcome. Oh boy. And today, Glad to be here. <laughs> today we're going to talk about the two things you're not supposed to talk about at the Thanksgiving table, All right. religion and politics. Good thing it's not Thanksgiving, right? <laughs> All right. So our big question that we're diving into today, how do I balance faith and politics and oh boy how do i balance it i don't how know do that I you balance, balance it how yeah. do i well you feel free to correct the question but we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna dig in a little bit and try and figure out because somehow we've intertwined faith and politics mm. uh in our churches in our government in all different ways is that something that we need to untangle or is it something that we need to lean into with our faith? I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't either, to be honest with you, but I know that I don't like the tenor of where we are right now. And um, there is a reality to which uh, faith and politics can and should go together. But there's also uh, the, the atrocity, I feel, that we found ourselves in currently where there seems to be a belief that somehow only um, one, one side or the other or one perspective or the other is the only way to look at something. And, of course, that's not a good United Methodist way to look at things, nor do I happen to believe it's the, 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 the proper way to look at things. And I think that's where we're, why we're so um, entrenched in where we find ourselves, right, that we can't have civil conversations, yeah. that we can't have... Uh, conversations where we actually recognize that we might have differences of opinion. Yeah. Well, how let's let's go back in time a little bit. How has this conversation and conversations about politics and faith changed over time? Because you've been a pastor for a while, Long time. Long and I'm time. sure this is not the first time <laughs> that there's been tumultuous conversation around politics. Is, is there been a change in sentiment around the conversation over time? Yeah. I, I So obviously this will just be my perspective. And the short answer is yes, it's changed over time. So I've been a, an ordained clergy now for almost 30 years. And uh, in those 30 years, <clears throat> I've witnessed um, uh, a, a polarity happening. That is to say, when I was young in ministry and being a senior pastor, I could talk about what you, what could be referred to as political things from the pulpit, uh, as long as I acknowledge that it was uh, scriptural for us to talk about it, right? That I could kind of point to scripture. Over the last, and I'm going to just kind of gauge, over the last decade to, to maybe uh, 12 to 15 years, I've seen the polarization become much stronger. And uh, I, I, I just, I'm trying to remember the time frame, but I remember the first time I was cautioned for something that I said that had no nothing to do with what I said, but because what I said was a catchphrase of a political candidate that I wasn't even familiar with, I got challenged with, that's not scriptural, Pastor, or that's not biblical, Pastor. And I'm like, all I'm trying to do is make a point, and, and simply because it was a phrase that you didn't like of a political candidate that I really had no... Uh, affiliation with or knowledge of, you're going to condemn what I have to say. And that was kind of the beginning of it. And that was roughly, I don't know, 12 or so years ago, something like that. Yeah. Well, and I think that there's this, um, this thought of like, you can't talk about it from the pulpit. And it's either like uh, one extreme or the other, either a church is 
constantly bringing up political topics from the pulpit or it's just swept under the rug and completely ignored. And, and so it's hard because when I look at the message of Jesus. And I think if Jesus was here today preaching the exact same things that he was preaching 2000 years ago, he would be labeled as a radical as a, uh, and it would be extremely political. Like the things that he talks about of loving your neighbors has become politicized. And that's the big change that I've seen in my shorter lifetime than yours of like when I was in middle school and high school, I would hear the conversations around like Republican versus Democrat, all of these things. And it was often about like, where are our taxes going? What is like, how, how much money are we spending and where is it going? And, and that was the debate. But now the debate seems to be over our humanity and the way that we view other people. And it, it's something's changed. But the message of Jesus today would be seen as a political statement. Well, it's interesting you say that because <clears throat> I agree with that, but I also know that uh, Jesus himself, when he shows up and he has um, um, titles that people give to him and concepts that he proclaims, they were political. And so, uh, but they weren't thought of in the same fashion as we think of as political today. I mean, I want to talk about politics in what I consider to be sort of the broadest sense. I mean, politics by their nature are all about power, right? It's not really about partisanship, but that's what we've, we've made it into is partisanship, when in fact politics is really about power and how I use that power for good or for bad, right? And um, so when Jesus comes and he says, I, 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 I bring the kingdom of God with me, that's a political statement because he's saying the kingdom that you are uh, giving your allegiance to now, i.e. Caesar, um, is not what I'm about. And I'm about a different kind of kingdom. Well, that's instantly a political concept. When he talks about that that kingdom is about peace building and it's about um, equity and it's about justice, God... You know, Caesar doesn't care about that. He, he cares, Caesar cares about his justice and the way he wants it to live out. But Jesus brings a different uh, sense of what that means. And so there really is a, a, a reality to the fact that Jesus um, created a sense of political turmoil even in his day because he's proclaiming a different kingdom and he's calling people to a different form of allegiance. When he's called Lord, that's the title that was given to Caesar. When he's called um, Christ, uh, or Messiah, even some of the Caesars of the day would claim that for themselves. And so we, we tend to forget that because we feel like they're only religious terminology, but they're not. They were actually public terminologies that were co-opted by the church for Jesus's cause. With that in mind, is it is it even possible to keep faith and politics separate? No. And here's why I think that that's true. I think that what we sometimes refer to as political issues aren't really political so much as they're biblical. I mean, when you read Scripture and it talks about uh, providing for your neighbor and helping the alien in your midst because you were a stranger in a foreign land in the Hebrew Scriptures, that sounds political in today's world, but that's, that's biblical first before it's political, right? When we read the prophets and they talk about providing for the widows and for the orphans, and again, for the sojourner in the land or the alien in the land, 
That's biblical. That's not political. But we've taken it up as a cause, right, in political, in, in political structure and um, said, well, that's really political. Let's not talk about that. Or I don't agree with what you're talking about because I don't like the, the angle that you're taking it from, right? And so I choose to say, well, I'm not choosing something here. I'm, I'm simply pointing out what the scriptures say, mm-hmm. right? So, so there's, there's confluence, right? Because there's, there, there is overlap between what our, what our scriptures tell us, our holy texts, and what are considered political topics for the day. Yeah. And I, I think it's easy to say, well, just keep it on an individual level then, you know, if if God is calling you to uh, welcome the stranger and yeah, do that in your individual life, but that shouldn't have anything to do with the way you vote. Mm. And that's where I start to struggle because I'm like, well, but doesn't it mean that I am called to... Um, speak into these systems that are are oppressing people that scripture tells me I should be uplifting and loving and caring for and welcoming in. And that's where I start to get, um, I really have trouble with people who say, just keep faith and politics separate. Although I do believe in separation of church and state. (laughs) And so it gets really complicated. It gets convoluted, doesn't it? And I I think... I'm just going to tell you what I think, right? That's why I'm here, right? So yes, just tell you I what I think. I would love to hear what you yeah. think. <laughs> yeah. So um, a part of it, I believe, is that um, we have um, different allegiances that cause conflict in our hearts, right? Um, I happen to love living in this country. I love America. I know that it has all kinds of faults. There are all kinds of things I'd love to have changed in this country, but I still appreciate being here. Otherwise, I would just move somewhere else, right? And a part of that allegiance um, is that there are laws that we have to abide by. And a part of those laws say that uh, in a democratic society, we're going to vote and we're going to choose electors based on those votes, right? Well, golly, in Scripture... There's nothing about voting. And so instantly there's kind of a conflict uh, of our allegiances because our, our faith tells us, golly, voting is not really the way you do it. If we, <laughs> if we were to be biblical, you, you know what we would do? We would cast lots. And that'd be real popular, wouldn't it? Right? So, so part of it is we've got conflicting values. And democracy, which I appreciate and cherish and, and think is a good thing, uh, sort of sometimes uh, falls into conflict with Christianity because Christianity doesn't ap- appreciate or value voting. But then there's the second thing that you identified, separation of church and state. Holy crud, that's the first amendment, right? Mm-hmm. And so we have to identify that this nation was literally founded upon the realization that there should be no established religion. There should be no law that establishes religion. And yet we have people all over the place going, well, this is a Christian nation and we're supposed to have the Christian values and so forth. And, and yet the very foundational document of our country says there shall be no law that establishes a religion. Hello. That, that creates controversy. Yeah. Well, okay, so what is the church's role in all of this? If we're talking about politics, because I think that the church has been a really strong advocate for major political change from the civil rights movement to mm-hmm. the ending, the abolition of slavery, um, women's rights movements. There have been so much that the church honestly has been on all sides of, but the church has been a force for positive change in all of these areas. So that means the church is involved in politics. 
uh, and they're involved in politics. Again, my my opinion, they're involved in politics because they know that's where the power is, right? And that's the broadest sense of what politics is. So we know that if if po- if power can have influence over civil rights or abolition of slavery or women's rights, then that's where we're going to direct our energies. Mm-hmm. And and I think those are all appropriate. I think those are appropriate ways that even Jesus himself did it, right? When Jesus steps into a community and he challenges the authorities and he challenges the people in power, that's politics. Mm-hmm. He was being political in what he did, even though that word wasn't used, right? It wasn't the way we typically describe it, but he's speaking into and or against power when he does that. It's a fine line, right? We um, support separation of church and state, but we believe the church can be a place of positive change. And we have people in our congregations that uh, are on all sides of any given issue, um, especially in the United Methodist congregation, as you mentioned, where we're like, yeah, all lines of thought, Mm. come on in, let's talk about it. Let's wrestle with it. Let's have these conversations, Um, not necessarily to change each other's mind, but to be inclusive. What are some of the red flags that we need to look out for in church leadership when it comes to politics? Because there are a lot of gray areas, and I think that there have been a lot of very charismatic uh, church personalities that are leading us into like this political minefield. Yeah. Well, for me personally, and I, I think even legally, I would I think this is true. Um, I think it's inappropriate for any spiritual leader to literally tell people who to vote for in terms of candidates. I think it's viable for a pastor or church leader to say, here's who I'm voting for, if they're willing to say that. I've never said that from the pulpit. I've never said that in any formal capacity. In private conversations, I have. But I, I don't think it's appropriate that a leader says, this is who you should vote for. I think likewise, it, we get into dangerous trouble when we sort of advocate for specific, um, certainly specific uh, partisan uh, groups, right, that you, you should only vote this particular party. I think that those are red flags, right? On the other hand, I think it's appropriate for a pastor using Scripture as a guide and our faith and tradition as a guide to say, um, our scriptures tell us that we need to be voting for peace, or we need to be voting for uh, the outcast, or we need to be voting for things that create justice for the outcast, right? That's very scriptural. Mm-hmm. And so I think there are things that we can talk about, and it, it, you know, the more I think about it, the more I sort of realize it, it's kind of what I would refer to as the bigger ticket items rather than a specific candidate or a specific party. Mm-hmm. Well, um Okay, let, let's talk about something specific for a moment. And the only reason that I bring this up is because Christian has been co-opted into the name. Mm. I want to understand a little bit more about Christian nationalism and what that is and how it really came to be, um, because I think it's something that is that scares people. Absolutely. And, um, and it but, should. and yet it's, it's using the word Christian, which we all <laughs> call ourselves. And so we're all kind of pulled into this brand, uh, and we need to know what it is and what's going on. So, yeah. so could you tell me a little bit about what Christian nationalism is, where it came from, and what it means? Yeah, I, I wish I could tell you literally where it comes from, but what's interesting uh, from what I understand about it is um, 
I mean, let's just let's just sort of define Christian nationalism first. As I understand it, Christian nationalism is nationalism is kind of this concept where a country, in our case, America, a country is defined by the Christian uh, faith. That is to say, all of its values, all of its mores, all of its laws, all of its understandings should be defined in the context of the Christian faith. And um, obviously, as Christians, we believe the Christian faith is a really cool thing, and we believe it's helpful, and we believe the teachings of Jesus are extremely important and and, uh, foundational to who we are as individuals. But for a country in particular, like America, whose, again, foundational document says there should be no law that establishes a religion, there's no way that those can be co-opted together. We can't have Christian nationalism uh, on both sides for this reason. Our country says you shouldn't have the establishment of any religion, whatever that religion is, and our faith as a, as a, as a, a, um, a religion says uh, we're beyond nation, we're beyond tribe, we're beyond any kind of culture or anything, and, and we can literally point across the globe and say virtually every country in the world, not every country, but almost every country in the world, um, has Christianity in it. And therefore, Christianity clearly is beyond any nation. It's beyond any uh, sort of tribe or, or um, ethnicity or anything, right? So Christian nationalism, the earliest I can see it personally, and I didn't do a lot of study on this by any stretch, but I think even the, uh, in the 20th century, you see it, for instance, in Nazi Germany. I mean, that was Christian nationalism at its worst, right, where, we, where they claim to be followers of Jesus, and yet they're killing people and hoarding people and imprisoning people and doing it all supposedly in the name of um, the values of the Bible. Holy goodness. Yeah. We can look back and go, clearly that wasn't right, and, 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 and that's gone awry. And while certainly there are people who will say, well, this nation was founded upon Christianity, and therefore a Christian nationalism is a good thing, I would simply say, while the preponderance of people who helped to found this nation, and perhaps even today the preponderance of the people might be Christian, it's, it, it wasn't the foundation of the country. They made sure that it wouldn't be. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That was the point. And one likewise could argue that many of them were deists, that is, they believed in a higher power, they believed perhaps even in a single God, but they were actually quite open, our founding fathers, to other religions. It's why in the early uh, colonies there were Jewish synagogues. There were even Muslim mosques in the early colonies because they believed that they shouldn't have a foundational religion, a, a law that establishes a faith. Well, and it also makes me think about within our faith um, how how arrogant the idea is that we should be, we should force everyone in our country to adhere to the Christian values and whatever you define those. Um, and yet God gave us free will Mm -hmm. to make our own decisions. And we say that like in Christ, there is freedom in God, there is freedom. And yet we're going to say, Hey, I'm taking that freedom that that was given to me and I'm going to force it upon you. And it just, it feels so backwards. And it it worries me because there are a lot of people stepping forward, trying to reclaim Christian nationalism and saying it's a positive thing. And why did we ever make it a bad thing? And well, because it's forcing people people into a value system that they're not signing up for. Yeah, and I, th- I think people get confused between 
patriotism, which says, hey, I appreciate my country and I value my country and I want to honor my country, even though, I mean, I'm a patriot. I believe that I'm patriotic and that I love this country, but I know there's a whole bunch of stuff that can be corrected, that can be made better, that can be um, challenged in terms of how we operate. And so one can be patriotic and not be a Christian nationalist. I and get I think confused people... on that too, though, because if we're saying Christianity is without nation, without border, without, you know, what is it to be patriotic? It's because to... it's to say I'm borderless, I'm without country. I and, and so my thought is like, okay, patriot of the world, I guess. But like to even claim patriotism for a specific land yeah. feels odd to me if I'm saying... Um, I, I let go of my homeland and I join the community of Christ. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Uh, I would just simply say that for me, patriotism means... And I, I just got canceled, by the way, for yeah. saying that I'm not patriotic. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, granddad. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I think, I think you make a very valid point. We are beyond boundaries and we are beyond nation if we follow Jesus, right? And, and that we find our common bond in our faith in Christ and nothing else. But I do think it's possible for us to cherish the land, right, or to cherish the values of the land or to cherish the history of the land. To me, that's patriotism. So so, so going back to Scripture, what are some examples in Scripture about either faith-informing politics or, on the reverse side, politics-informing faith? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's vast, really, because— um, like you look at the prophets in the Old Testament and their whole purpose in a, in what would we would call today a theocracy, right? That is to say that God is sort of over all and that God is sort of the ruler of all. So when the p- prophets are writing, whether it's Isaiah or Jeremiah or any of the minor prophets, they're all talking about um, how we need to offer justice in the world and how we need to care for the outcast and how we need to help those who are poor and how we need to provide for those who can't uh, take care of themselves. And, um, and, and not be selfish, quite literally. That was one of the things. And then not turn to idols. All of those become political issues, right? Mm-hmm. Because we talk about a welfare state or we talk about why do we take care of this group and not that group. And Well, and that's the turmoil is like they said, here are the things you need to do. Love goodness, do justice, yep. all these things. But I'm like, if you could have just told us how, like that would cut out so many problems of how, okay, so we all have different views of what is justice and how to achieve justice. It, it's... Well, but they did get somewhat specific. So if you go to the Torah, the first five books of the law in the Old Testament, there are some specific things. Like when you, um, when you um, uh, reap your harvest, you don't reap the whole field. You leave, some, uh, you leave some of the corners and you leave some of the edges for folks to come glean who, who can't afford to raise their own crops. Mm. There's a specific, right? There's specifics about uh, how you treat the foreigner, that you treat them literally like they're one of your household, like they're one of your own nation. It literally says that in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus. And so you're like, oh, okay. And then as obviously as we become more modernized, not just in this country, but in other countries, and we begin to establish what you and I would refer to as borders of our nation state, which didn't really exist before, that's when we start getting real crabby about, well, by golly, that's our land. That's our. Well, the reality is people had their own land in the biblical state too. They just didn't have clear and distinct and identifiable borders. But 
there were still foreigners and there were still people coming in, right? And so, so there are some specifics. And then when you get to Jesus, um, every time Jesus tells a parable, whether it's the Good Samaritan, the prodigal son, or a- any of them, Jesus is teaching those as a, as a sign of his kingdom, as a way to live into his kingdom, his way of being, right? So every one of those is, is, is political, basically. So, golly, you look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, and that says, it, it, it lists literally about 10 or 12 different specific things that the Samaritan did for the man who fell among robbers, right? Everything from picking him up to touching him to putting him on a horse to binding him up to putting him up in a, a hotel, uh, so-called, for the night. Those are all indications of what we're supposed to be doing, how we're supposed to be living, Right. And I've, I maintain those are all political acts. We don't call them as such, but they are. And so um, when he says, give to Caesar what is due to Caesar, he's saying, pay your taxes. Mm. You know? So I think there are some specifics. Mm. So all of these, these stories, uh, and I see that you brought your book, Jesus for President. <laughs> uh, so the, Jesus for President might inform this, this next question. Taking all of these stories, like you mentioned, it's uh, from biblical times, right? And so, yes, there were examples given to us in the Old Testament that it's sometimes hard for us to take that of like leaving the corners of your field for people who are hungry and relating that to modern society where it's the grocery store. It's mm. uh, the governmental systems are so much more robust than they ever were, all of these things. So what can we learn from these biblical stories that bring us to today and how we should live today and how we treat our faith and politics yeah. balance right now. Yeah. Well, here's, a, here's an irony as I see it. It goes all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, when Cain kills Abel, and when God comes looking for Abel, God says, hey, where's your brother? And Abel, uh, Cain says, am, I, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? And the irony in that statement was, Cain is trying to rub it off as if I don't, I'm not supposed to take care of my brother. And of course, the context is, yeah, you are. You are your brother's keeper. That's why God is asking you where your brother is. And sure enough, you killed him, right? So a part of this goes all the way back to the very beginning about, uh, that's about as relevant as it comes, right? If I'm my brother's keeper, and let's contextualize it, I'm my sister and my brother's keeper. I'm, I'm everybody's keeper, basically. What that means is I've got to be in relationship with you, and I need to know you, and I need to better understand you, and I want to—the only way I can do that is if I'm in relationship with you. By golly, if I'm in relationship with you, I'm less likely to mistreat you, less likely to go to war with you, less likely to get selfish on you because I I know you, and I don't want you to go without, right? And so all the way back to the beginning, it it helps us to see that um, we got to be about caring for each other. And um, that's timeless. That, that doesn't have a biblical time versus modern time. Now, so you, you mentioned this book, uh, Jesus for President. I'm so a huge Shane advocate. Shane Claiborne, right? Yeah, Shane yeah. Claiborne. Uh, and his basic context is Jesus ought to be our ruler. He uses president because, of course, he's writing it to primarily an American audience. But the basic premise is Jesus brought a different kingdom, a different way of, of being in political entity and structure. It's a phenomenal book. I'm a huge fan of Shane. He, he's got several other books, but that, that's the most relevant. A different one that I want to highlight as well, but has a similar context, is by Brian McLaren. It's called Everything Must Change. And, and Brian does it in a slightly different way. He, 
whereas Shane is about kind of America, if you will, and the context of America as, as it relates to Jesus, Brian takes it uh, to globally and, and basically says that there are sort of um, three things that we need to work on globally that many of us would consider politics. Um, he talks about peace, poverty, and creation, and that if we can solve the peace crisis, i.e., there is none. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if we can solve the poverty crisis, i.e., there's way too much and we need to help our brother and sister. And if we can solve the creation crisis, and obviously that's about taking care of uh, God's creation, that um, we will actually be living into biblical values and we'll be living into the kingdom that Christ brought. That if we establish that peace is is ultimate, and you know, Shane uses, and I love this imagery, Shane uses the imagery that the platform of Jesus is what we now refer to as the um, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 that starts with the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the meek, right? Blessed are the... And so um, that's the platform that Christ brings, and it's very political because it's anti-everything that the world stood for then, and I maintain stands for now because we're all very selfish, right? We all want our own way. So, and uh, McLaren just takes it one step further beyond this country, and it, I, I highly recommend everything must Does change. Does he say what order? That's a tall order, peace, poverty, and creation. Does he say which one we should start with? He, well, he, he, he takes it in that order, yeah. peace, poverty, and creation. Uh, and he knows, uh, uh, Brian McLaren is, uh, I, I love both Shane and Brian. I read almost everything they've ever written. I think I have everything that Brian has written. Um, they're some of the few folks that I just kind of, highly resonate with and really appreciate where they're coming from. And uh, Brian knows, for instance, or acknowledges that the creation deal is so hard because of our own selfish interests. I mean, I'm drinking out of a plastic cup, right? And you're drinking out of a plastic bottle and it's all about convenience, right? Mm -hmm. But I I want my water and it can destroy the earth, right? So we're all selfish. Is what we're facing today politically similar to what Jesus was facing during his time? And what what would he have to say about our cultural climate today, our political climate today? Is it the same message, or do you think he might? His message, I think, would be the same. Yeah. Um, I, th- I, I think he might have different analogies, because, of course, he was very much an analogous teacher, right? He would tell a story and ask questions, and so his, his analogies would be different. But his points would be exactly the same. And um, what I think is, um, you know, the, the, the only people Jesus ever got really ticked off at were the political religious leaders of the day, mm. including Peter, but certainly the um, Pharisees and the Sadducees who were the Jewish uh, religious leaders. And what he got upset was with them was that somehow they, they believed they had the only way and that they believed that if you didn't do it just the way they wanted you to do it, then clearly you were wrong. And Jesus came basically to say, hey, it's not so much that um, the way you do it is the right way. It's that there are other ways to do the same thing. There are other ways to love your neighbor. There are other ways to love God and versus a very legalistic sense, right? But Jesus got really ticked off at him, right? He overchanged money changers' tables, and he called people names. And uh, it's fascinating to me that he got—he did not get upset with the people that um, 
really needed care and compassion. He got upset with the people who thought they knew everything. Well, even the leaders that weren't religious, I, did he get as upset with them? Or is it that like, hey, if you're claiming to be a representative of God, you better come correct. That's correct. You know? and yeah, no, he didn't seem to lose his cool with Pilate, for instance. Yeah, right? that's what yeah. I, I was yeah. thinking of Pilate. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he challenged Pilate, but really just in the sense of intellectual challenge, right? What is truth? Or, or you, you call me, uh, you know, king of the Jews, but um, that's not what I've said. You know, he challenged him intellectually, but he didn't challenge him any other way. How do we love people who we disagree with without becoming complacent? And I can explain that a little bit more because Please. this is something I personally struggle with. <laughs> I am an eight on the Enneagram. I love a good debate, and I have very strong views. Really? Um, <laughs> I've never known that. And there are, if I disagree with somebody, I'm I'm quick to enter a conversation about it. I am no fear. I'm not going to back down, and uh, keeping the peace is not <laughs> my top priority. Uh, I'm getting called out in all kinds of ways today with my plastic water bottle and <laughs> keeping the peace. Um, but sometimes I feel like if I hear somebody who claims Christianity and yet politically what they're preaching is so counter to the Christ I know and the Christ I've studied, I understand that there are differences of interpretation, but some things are so, uh, counter mm. to the God I know yeah. that I can't, I can't uh, just let it be. And I don't know how to to wrestle that with, because I know I don't want to push people away. I don't want to um, make them feel unloved, but I also want to be like, you know what? If you're going to claim Christianity, you should probably read about it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know. Like it's, it is, it is hard, right? Because, uh, uh, my hunch is uh, there are some that you're sort of describing. I know you don't want to name anybody, but I mean, there's some that you're describing who would clearly believe in to the core of their gut that they are following Jesus, yes. right? And that they do know what yes. scriptures say and so forth and so on. Uh, and so that's what makes it hard, I think, is um, you're reading the scripture and I'm reading the scripture and they're supposedly reading the scripture and, the, and, and we're, we're looking at it clearly in two very different ways. And uh, uh, here, here's what I believe. I think if we, if we literally follow the teachings of Jesus, if we just stick with that, which is not the entire Bible, right? Nor is it even the entire New Testament. But if we stick just with the teachings of Jesus, I think that we would find that people would have to change the way they think. Mm. It, that is to say, if they really claimed him, if they really said, hey, I'm his follower and I'm going to do what he says. What I have discovered is there are a lot of people who think they know what Jesus said, or that they've seen other parts of either the New Testament or the Old Testament, for that matter, and they think that that may somehow triumph over who Jesus is and what Jesus' teachings are. But again, uh, as Shane points out in his book, um, if you look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it is very antithetical to the culture of almost any country, but certainly America. And... Um, we struggle with all that because we tend to allow the values we claim as our nation state to triumph over the values we claim as a follower of Jesus. 
Now, that didn't answer your question, really. Your question is, how do you love people when you, you know, sort of vehemently disagree with them? I wish I had a simple answer. I don't, really. All I can tell you is I, I have found it helpful to, to enter into more dialogue with people with whom I disagree than to back away from the dialogue. I'm a one on the Enneagram, so I always want to win, mm-hmm. and I always want to have it my way, and um, that's hard. Oh, I get into these circular, never-ending arguments of, like, they're not budging, I'm not budging, yeah. but we're going to keep debating yeah. until my usually my sister, my sweet sister, says, okay, Alyssa, that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> she has to step in and be like, maybe, maybe it's time to stop now. <laughs> yeah. So what I've challenged myself to do, and I don't do this well, but I challenge myself to do it is... I'm going to listen to you first, and I'm going to let you share whatever you believe you need to share or talk about with regard to your belief about X or Y or Z. And I'm going to let you finish, and then I'm literally going to say, is that what you want to share? Is that all that you feel you, can, you need to say? And, and then I'm going to share. And I've started that because I believe that was one of Jesus's tactics, was to hear people out first and acknowledge who they are first before I kind of inundate, inundate or share where I'm coming from. And I hope it doesn't always work. Number one, I don't always do it. But number two, even if I do do it, um, the goal, of course, is that I have respected you, that I've honored you, and certainly that I've listened to you, uh, is that, golly, maybe you would then be willing to listen to me, and you would be willing to at least hear me out. And I've also challenged myself, and this goes against my grain, but I'm challenging myself to think in these conversations, is my goal to win or is my goal simply to share where I'm coming from and what I happen to believe is scriptural? And if it's the latter, I, I don't have to get into an argument. I don't have to get into a uh, I'm going to win concept, but I do still need to share my value and my belief and my understanding. I believe if we're genuinely caring and genuinely um, desiring to be in relationship, we're going to be willing to have those differences and coexist. But it's hard. Mm. Okay, so that that the big question today is how do I balance faith and politics? So mm. if I'm giving you one on the Enneagram, the red pen to cross out that question and rewrite what you wish the question had been today, <laughs> what is it? What is it? Because when I first asked you, you, were like, I don't know if that's possible to balance faith and politics. What's the well, yeah, revision? To, well, for me, it was the word balance. And so um, I, I don't know that there needs to be a balance so much as there needs to be, I believe faith must inform politics. And I think the dilemma we have fallen into in this country in particular, it's really the only one I can speak into, is that we have allowed politics to inform our faith. And that um, is corrupt, and it is... Um, um, dismantling of faith. Because what I hear over and over again is, yeah, I know it says that in Scripture, most commonly with regard to the alien in our land. I know it says that in Scripture, but we can't live that out today, and we've got all kinds of things that prohibit that. And, all. and I simply say, well, either you're scriptural or you're not. Either you believe what the text says or you don't. And you know I'm not a literalist, so I mean, my point basically is, uh, let faith inform your politics, not bas- the other way around, mm-hmm. right? And so that's why I struggled with the word balance, because I don't, I, don't, I don't understand how to um, 
have a balance of, of that because it ought to be literally one way. Faith ought to inform politics. Well, that's all I have today. So thank thank you. you. And now you can check this off your list because I know you've been looking forward to this one. It has been the highlight of my day. (laughs) Thank you, Daniel. The Life Plus God podcast is hosted, written, and produced by me, Alyssa Robinson, and sponsored by Treach Memorial United Methodist Church in Flower Mound, Texas. If you live in the Flower Mound area, I invite you to stop by and see if Treach could be your new church family. You can learn more about all of our programs and events at tmumc.org. And I hope to catch you next week for our next episode of the Life Plus God podcast.